Please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4 as we continue making our way through the book of Acts. We're going to look at verses 1 through 22, and if you're able to this morning, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Remember what's happened in chapter 3. In chapter 3, the lame beggar was healed. The, the people are, are astonished at what's happened. They, they congregate there in an area of the temple, and Peter begins to proclaim the gospel to them. He says, look, just as God had the power to meet this man's physical need, you are in spiritual need, and God has the power to address that as well. And verse 26 of chapter 3 says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And then we come into chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13 now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and pursue, perceived they, they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. And Heavenly Father, we do ask you to, to be with us this morning as we, we talk about these things. We, we pray that you would, by your grace, enable us to, to love your son Jesus more and enable us to, to be more obedient. We pray that you'd help us to think rightly about 
the authorities that you have placed in our life and help our allegiance to, to be to you ultimately and you alone. We pray for you to be glorified in our time this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you two statements as we begin our, our time together this morning. T- two statements that all Christians should agree with, all biblical, true believers should agree with both of these statements. Statement number one, God is our ultimate authority. God is our ultimate authority. That, that should not be a very controversial statement. All of us would agree with that statement. Second statement, God has placed other authorities, earthly authorities over us, and as we are able to, we need to be submissive to those authorities as well. Again, I, I don't think that's a controversial statement. Both those statements are, are true. All believers should agree with those statements, and, and they seem pretty simple on their face. God is our ultimate authority. God has also placed other authorities over us, and as we are able, we need to be obedient to them in those spheres in which God has placed them, our, our parents, uh, teachers, employers, and so forth. As you know, however... <laughs> Even though those statements are very simple, at times it's, it's difficult to understand how those statements relate to one another. And as we think even about what's going on in our, our current culture with, with just, for example, the, the church and different instructions that the government is, is giving churches in different places in our country, in our world, how to, to balance those two statements has proven to be very difficult. In fact, Christians among good Bible-believing, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting churches, there is, there is divisions be- between churches and within churches and, and different Christian organizations about how to understand, how to reconcile these two statements given a, a, a certain set of circumstances. All sorts of questions begin to, help, begin to, to shape how we view how those, those statements go together just in this issue of COVID-19 in the church. How, how serious is the pandemic? What actions specifically by the government overstep its sphere of authority? What do we do when it does? How do we do it? All of these questions are, are difficult, and as you know, they're leading to a lot of tension within the church. Now, my, my purpose this morning is, is not to get into all the issues of how we figure all those things out. T- tonight, we'll talk a little bit more about the principles that are shaping our church's thinking about COVID-19 and the church gathering and those sorts of things. But what I want to do this morning, though, is, is talk a little bit more broadly. We as, a, as Christians must realize that there are many voices that claim to speak authoritatively in our lives. And sometimes those voices that claim authority, and and rightly because God has placed them as authorities in our lives, sometimes those voices overstep their spheres. So for example, you're you're a kid and you have parents, and whenever you're younger, the the parents have a a broad scope of authority, a broad right to, to speak in a lot of areas in your life. But, but as you get older, as you get older, the, the appropriateness of a parent speaking in different areas de- decreases. And so maybe you're an adult and your parents are still trying to speak authoritatively in your life about how you should worship or what you should do with your career and all sorts of things. And, and there's, a, there's a tension there. How do, I, how do I understand the nature of their authority? Or 
you're an employee in, in a company, and there's a, a boss, and, and this boss has some very specific visions of how you should conduct your life and how you should balance work, family, and you know, boy, I don't think that's appropriate, or how you should conduct yourself, and, and the, the level of integrity your boss has is lower than your level of integrity, and you're thinking, oh, how, do I, how, do I, how do I think about these authoritative voices? Or you have friends, and those friends are trying to speak into how you should view life. Or you have teachers in the school, and, and the teachers have a different understanding of, of morality, and, and they, they're te- telling you this is how you need to conduct yourself, this is what you need to believe. How, how, do, you, how do you respond to that? Or you think about in the political sphere. It seems like, uh, it seems like every week, either directly or indirectly, I get some sort of communication that, that tells I get two forms of communication. One communication that comes to me, again, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, will say, look, you are a pastor, and as, as a pastor, you must denounce everything that's, that's untrue or that's, that's inappropriate that a certain politician says. And, and then I get something from a, another group that says, if you don't support the same politician, then, then you are guilty of, of what his opponents want to do. And, and those are authoritative voices trying to say, okay, this is what you must do as a believer. And here, here's what I want to do this morning. There are a lot of voices telling us what to do. What I want to do is just for a moment this morning, I want to push those voices to the side. Not not saying they're not still authoritative over us in certain areas, but I want to push those voices to the side for a moment. And, And let's just ask ourselves this question. What does God want me to do? What is God's authoritative voice telling me to do. And what we see in this passage is that God is calling us as believers to a very simple task, proclaim the gospel. We we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to unbelievers, to believers, to ourselves. We proclaim the gospel. Here's the the, the main idea that I want us to think about this morning. Kids, if you are taking notes uh, and and your parents aren't, kind of nudge them and help them take notes as well. But here's kind of the main idea that you can write down. God's call God's call to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ must be obeyed by his church. God's call to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ must be obeyed by his church. That is an instruction we have been given by God that trumps all other instructions that we have been given, all the commands that a person might give us, God's call to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ must be obeyed by his church. We know of no other ultimate allegiance besides God. All other authorities are subservient to God. He is our divine, the one to whom our divine allegiance is owed. So what I want to do, I want to look at this passage. In this passage, we encounter the first opposition to Christianity. And I'm applying this to to worldly leadership, even though you could make the argument these are religious leaders as well, but I'll I'll explain why I'm doing that as we go through this this first point particularly. But we're going to look at four points that help us understand our our ultimate allegiance and how we respond and think about other authorities. And then as as I look at each point, so four points, but as I look at each point, I'm going to give you a, a caution or two as well as we go through these. So here's number one, point number one. Obedience to God, obedience to God will inevitably lead to conflict with worldly leaders. So a a committed obedience to God is inevitably going to lead to conflict with with worldly leaders. That's unavoidable. 
So look at verses 1 through 7. Now remember what's happened. Peter has been proclaiming the gospel, and, and as he proclaims the gospel, it says in verse 1, he encounters some opposition. It says they're, they're speaking to the people, and, and they're, they run into to conflict with the priests, the captain of the, t- and the, of the temple, the Sadducees. And then later, they're going to be, they're going to be uh, taken away from the people. They're going to be placed into custody because it's late in the afternoon. It's about 3 o'clock or so. Remember, that's when it started. And so uh, they're going to be placed into custody. And the next day, they're going to appear before other groups. So a couple questions as we look at these seven verses here the first seven verses of the chapter. First of all, where is this opposition to the gospel message coming from? Well, in verse 1, it's the, the priests, those who had jurisdiction over the temple, the, the captain of the guard of the temple. They were in opposition with him. The Sadducees. And then the next day, they're brought in front of a, a council, and this was probably the Sanhedrin, which was a group of, of 71 kind of Jewish leaders, or maybe a portion of the Sanhedrin. And and notice the people that it mentions. It says they're in front of the rulers, they're in front of the elders, they're in front of the scribes, and then also are the high priest and those who are part of the high priestly family. It mentions Caiaphas, he was the former high, or sorry, Annas, he was the former high priest. Caiaphas is his son-in-law, and notice Annas uh, retains the title of high priest. It's kind of like you continue to refer to a, a former president, president or vice president, vice president, so he con- continues to have the title high priest. But at this point, Caiaphas was the ruling high priest, and then John is Annas's son, and Alexander, this whole priestly, high priestly family. So they, they bring Peter and John, and they set them in front of this group. That's where the opposition is coming from. They say, well, what type of authority does this group have? And it's a real authority that these leaders have. Maybe it's kind of hard for us to, to understand this, this first century world, but here in Jerusalem, this, this group exercises tremendous authority. Now, it's, it's authority they have to kind of keep in balance. You'll notice at the end of the, the passage, they, they kind of fear the people, and so they need to do things that don't rile up the people and the reason is they're, they're trying to also stay on the good side of, of Rome. So these leaders kind of are a liaison between the, the people and the Roman government. As they serve at the pleasure of the Roman government, they can kind of keep the peace. But if they, if they make Rome mad, they get in trouble. If they make the people mad, they get in trouble, and they lose the position of prestige that they have. And so they have real authority. They have the power to do the thing that a secular government would do, which I think is why we can kind of view this in terms of how a worldly government worldly leaders would operate as well. They, they have secular power, and they have the ability to make life very miserable for the church. Now, another question as we look at these verses is, is what causes them to, be, uh, to, to draw their attention to the gospel message originally? Look at verse 2. It says they're greatly annoyed. They're greatly annoyed. That, that word is also used in Acts chapter 16 as Paul gets greatly annoyed with a slave girl who begins to follow him around and, and, and shout things at him. It's like, it's not just this outburst of anger. It's kind of a, a frustration that builds over time. You're on a, a car trip with your younger brother. He begins to hum. And you know, it's, 
it's a little annoying at first, but then hour after hour after hour after hour, you become greatly annoyed. It's, it's, it's just grating at you, and it kind of explodes a little bit here. They're, they're, they're greatly annoyed. Their frustration with this gospel message is, is increasing. And you can imagine it's, it's built over this time that the disciples have been going into the temple proclaiming the gospel. Now, why are they greatly annoyed? The text gives two explicit reasons. One, they're teaching the people. Two, they're proclaiming in Jesus, in his name, the resurrection from the dead. Now, why does this message bother them? Because it threatens their power, their favored position with Rome. If Rome gets mad about the proclamation of the gospel, they're in trouble. If the people get riled up and start causing trouble, they're in trouble with Rome, and they they lose this position of power. In other words, what I want you to see is this opposition is not a theological opposition. It's political. So they draw you draw the scene, you, you see the two disciples standing before the Sanhedrin, and notice the, the question that they ask. Verse 7, by what power or, or by what name did you do this? By what power or in what name did you do this? Their question illustrates their concern. This is an issue of authority conflict. What these leaders, these worldly leaders desire is something different than what God desires. And now there's a conflict. In our our home, uh, Whitney and I try to be on the the same page when it comes to instructions we give the, the kids, but I like to joke around, and so sometimes whenever the kids will, will ask Whitney if they can do something, and, and she'll say, no, not, now's not a really good time for that, I always look at them and go, oh, oh, guys, I would have totally said yes to that. I'm, oh, sorry, mom said no, but yeah, next time ask the fun parent, right? And, and the kids know that I am not the fun parent, and, but they also don't laugh at that joke very much either, but, but they, they, know that, they know that Whitney and I are united, and if Whitney and I have a difference of opinion about whether we should let them do something or not let them do something. We always say, look, whatever will make the kids most miserable, that's what we're united on, right? That's what we desire as parents, to make our children miserable. We're united. We're one front on that. No, but we both desire the same thing. What we really desire, of course, is to glorify God. And so Whitney and I are on the same page in our parenting. These are two authorities in our children's lives that are united and wanting what's best for them, but ultimately what's best for them to glorify God and for us to glorify God as parents. That's not what you have in the world. What you have as you encounter the world, and again, the world as we've defined it before is this uh, a collection of powers that are set in opposition to God and his kingdom. Ultimately, that, that's what worldly power is. And worldly power desires worldly ends. Believe, th- those who are in positions of power who do not love the Lord are not committed to God's glory. It's, it's, it's inevitable, right? And so what is also inevitable is, is I say, okay, I'm, I'm committed to, to God. I'm committed to, to God being glorified in my life. I'm going to do whatever I can for God to be glorified. It is inevitable that I am going to what? Come into conflict with those who want something different. The principle, again, is obedience to God will inevitably lead to conflict with worldly leaders. I need to be prepared for that. Now, let me give you a couple cautions. I want to do this with each principle because 
I, I think I have a sense of, of where our heart struggles might be at Bethany Community Church on, on these issues. In other words, I don't think I would have a hard time <laughs> getting us stirred up against the government, right, sometimes. So let me give you some cautions, because I know the wickedness of your hearts. <laughs> Number one, here's some cautions here, okay? Caution. The authority that the authority God gives to worldly leaders is limited by the sphere in which they operate, not their competence. Does that make sense? The authority that a leader has is not determined by their competence. It's determined by the, the God-given sphere. So, for example, I'm a kid, and uh, I, I can't say, well, because my parents don't manage their, their finances very well, I don't need to really listen to them anymore. No, no, it's... My, their sphere of authority in my life is, is not determined by their competence. It's determined by what, what God says their sphere of authority is. My parent doesn't cease to be my parent because they make mistakes. This past week or two, we paid our, our car registration fees. And our registration went, I think it was like $100 for the license fee, the sticker or whatever you put on your license. It was $100 last year. It's $150 this year. It's irksome, right? I, mean, I wasn't excited about that. But I can't say, look, because I, I disagree with this decision that's within the sphere of, of where the government operates, I can't say, I no longer need to be obedient to you. Obedience is determined by what God says the sphere is, not by the competence or my level of agreement with them. And then also, another caution, God is the ultimate authority, not me. So whenever I say that obedience to God is inevitably going to lead to conflict with worldly leaders, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm the one who's the ultimate authority here. It's, it's my allegiance to God, not my allegiance to myself that leads to conflict with the leaders. That, that should be the case anyway. Here's the second principle I want us to think about. Disobedience to worldly leaders. When we are disobedient to worldly leaders, we're going to have that conflict with worldly leaders. Disobedience to worldly leaders should reveal gospel foundations. Disobedience to worldly leaders should reveal gospel foundations. As we encounter opposition to the gospel message, the gospel message should be clearly presented, clearly proclaimed and pictured. Peter, look what happens here. Notice, first of all, the divine enablement. He stands up, he's standing there, and he's, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then notice also, he begins with a respectful tone. He acknowledges their sphere of authority, even though he's forceful in what he's about to say. He says, rulers, he says, uh, rulers of the people and elders. He acknowledges their God-given role and sphere. And, and then he tries, as he's done before in his speeches, he tries to, to clarify the issue. Look, if, if the reason that we're standing here today is about what we've done. And, and the implication is that Peter knows it's not really about what they've done. He says, if it is, if we're just, you're just asking us about this good deed we've done to a crippled man, how we did it, it was, it was by the name of Jesus. Oh, now he gets in the gospel. Jesus, and he contrasts them with God. Notice, notice this, this contrast with them and the authority of God. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this is verse 10, whom you crucified... And God raised from the dead. By, by him, this man is, is standing here before you today. And then, again, he, he goes into the gospel message. He calls them to, first of all, he's a, be aware of your sin. 
Here's who Jesus is, and then calls on them to believe. He says, it's, it's this Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. You had the responsibility to, to welcome Jesus as the Messiah. You failed. And then he gives the gospel here in verse 12. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a full-on assault on the exercise of their leadership. Paul, I'm sorry, uh, Peter's comments here reveal his ultimate purpose. He's, he's showing his passion, passion here for the gospel. Now, again, a couple cautions here. A couple cautions. Because you know the wickedness of my heart. Disobedience to worldly leaders, it should reveal the gospel foundation. A couple cautions as we think about this. One, our attitude towards leaders should be deferential and respectful even when we disagree. Our, our boss at work, we, we still recognize him or her as, as a person in a position of authority over us. A, a teacher at school with whom we disagree, we, we still are respectful toward them. We don't say derogatory things to them or about them. A second caution, a second caution here, if there's no gospel foundation for our disobedience, no, no God-exalting purpose behind our disobedience, it may not be true obedience to God. If there's no gospel fruit to the ministry that, brings a, that, 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 that comes about of my actions, it may just be that I'm, I'm acting in my flesh and not true obedience to God. If there's no gospel fruit to my disobedience, no gospel purpose behind my disobedience, it may not be true obedience to God. Think about the gospel fruit that happens here. Peter and John, as they engage in, in what turns out to be disobedience against the government, what happens? 5,000 people are saved. 5,000 men, more people are saved. It was just the men. Clearly, there's going to be times in believers' lives where we have to disobey, and that disobedience isn't going to be because we're exactly sharing the gospel. You know, think about Nazi Germany or uh, segregationist policies or abortion. You know, there's going to be times where we're not sharing the gospel per se, but all of our disobedience is connected to what we believe about who God is and who we are. There may be a temptation to labor our disobedience to authority as God-honoring, and maybe it isn't. We need to be careful. A third caution, our, our disobedience should point people to the beauty of the gospel and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Our motivation must be must be eternal reward, not personal ease. It's another caution. Our motivation needs to be eternal reward, not personal ease. Sometimes when we find ourselves most resistant to the authority of our parents, or we find ourselves most resistant to the authority of our boss, it's not because we're motivated by eternity, it's because we're motivated by our personal ease. I'm upset about what this authority is doing to me, about the inconvenience it is to me, and so I'm, I'm resistant. Biblical resistance to authority. Think about this. As we encounter biblical resistance to authority, it usually leads to greater suffering for the glory of God. We need to be prepared for that. Third principle here. Thirdly, third principle. As we look at verses 13 through 17. Worldly leaders will often prioritize power over truth. Worldly leaders are going to prioritize power over truth. Look, look what happens here in the text. As, as we encounter this, this speech by, by Peter, or excuse me, by the, the reaction of the, 
of the leaders. Look, look what happens. Verse 13, it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they, they hear what they're proclaiming, and they, they perceive they were uneducated, uncommon men. In other words, these are not rabbinically trained scholars. They're bold in their proclamation of the truth, but they're not articulating the things of God the way that a rabbinically trained scribe would do so. But they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It's not a beautiful verse, a beautiful truth. They have a different type of authority. There are those who've been with, with Jesus. They don't articulate the things the way that the scribes do, but there's an evidence of, of their true understanding of a different type of authority, Jesus' authority. And then, what else? They, they cannot argue with the evidence of a changed life. There's the guy standing there, the man healed, and they have nothing to say. Now, what, what should they have done at that moment? Here's a leader recognizing that they have nothing to say. There's no argument they can make. There's the evidence of this healed man and the testimony of how he's been healed. They can't argue with the truth, but they want to cling to power. And so the crux of their dilemma is not what is the truth, but the crux of their dilemma is how do we deal with this mess in such a way that our power is preserved? And what you and I need to understand is a sad reality for many in worldly leaderships, and sometimes it's explicit, sometimes I think worldly leaders do this unconsciously, they're, the sad reality is they're not hungry for the truth, they're hungry for control. Worldly leaders are going to often prioritize power over truth. And we need to be prepared for that as believers. Now let me give you some cautions with this again. One caution. We need to look to Scripture as our authoritative source to know what God's will is and submit to it. In other words, we don't just look into ourselves and say, okay, what does the truth seem like to me? We look to God's word and say, okay, what does God want me to do? What does he want me to believe? How does he want me to act? And, and that's the source of our authority. Here's, here's a second caution. And let me, be, let me be just brutally honest with this, right? Second caution is that the principle is worldly leaders are going to prioritize power over truth. My, my second caution is this. Worldly leaders aren't the only ones who are going to be tempted to be, to be untruthful. They're not the only ones who will be tempted to not let the facts get in the way of our own truth. Brothers and sisters, we're going to be tempted to do that as well. When we find ourselves upset with an authority, there may be a temptation to speak untruths. Our parents aren't being fair in their discipline. My parents aren't being fair. And so instead of, instead of saying, well, you know what, they're not being fair. I disagree with what they're doing here. We say something that, that's not truthful. We're, we're talking to our friends. And we slander our parents. My parents just want me to be miserable. That's not true, unless you're my children. That's not true. It's not a true statement. Your parents want other things as well. Misery is just a side benefit, right? We do this with other sources of authority. We say things about our boss that, that aren't true. They're not true statements. They're our frustration. My boss is just power hungry. My boss just cares about herself. That's not necessarily true. 
in our disagreements with, with the government right now, there, there are several ways I'm seeing believers accuse the government of things that are, that are not truthful. We spread conspiracy theories without solid evidence. That's, that's not speaking the truth. Now, some of the things may be true, but if we don't have evidence that the things that we're saying are true, we need to not say them. We need to be careful with spreading stories about motives or, or things that we're not sure are true. We need to, to, to be careful about attacking someone's motives unless we have concrete evidence. That's not speaking the truth. Saying that a government official, is, they're just motivated by greed. They just hate Christians. They just hate the church. They're controlled by big oil. They're controlled by big pharma. They're controlled by Wall Street. That, that may or may not be true. And if you don't know that that's true, you need to not say it. That's not appropriate disobedience to the government. We need to be careful with generalization when we, when we are odds with authority. Democrats, just this. Republicans, just this. Pro-life people, just this. I, I, you know how that feels. Persons, you know, sometimes people who, who disagree with, with what we believe about the, the sanctity of human life, whenever someone says, you know, pro-life people just care about babies. They don't care about babies after they're born. What? That's incredibly offensive to me. I need to be careful that I don't speak in the same way about other people saying generalizations that just simply are not true. We don't need to, to demonize those with whom we disagree, be it media, Republicans, or Democrats, or Fox News, or whoever. We need to be careful not to speak in generalities. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 36, we are going to have to give an account for every idle word. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful. Here's, here's my point. Think about this. There are worldly authorities who have set themselves up against God and his authority. I don't need to make up stuff about them, right? I don't need to, to attack things that I don't know are true or not. What I need to do is I need to be, as, as, as someone who is under their authority in some areas, I need to do all I can to pray for them, to care for them, to love for them, and I need to do so in such a way that they see that, that I, I love and desire good things for them. Here's the, the last, last principle here. Believers ultimately conclude God must be obeyed. Believers ultimately conclude that God and God alone, above all others, must be obeyed. We're in verses 18 through 22. And here's the real thrust of the passage. Now, this, this, this tension that's been simmering beneath the surface now comes to the forefront, and, and here's the, the real thrust of the passage. The instruction is explicit. We don't want them to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. It's extensive at all. It's specific in the name of Jesus. Now, let me just say this. How wonderful would it be if all my opposition with those that God has placed in authority in my life, if all that opposition was about the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that other policies aren't important, and it's not that you have to agree with everything authority does, but, but if, how wonderful would it be if those who were in authority over me said, you know, that, that Daniel, that Daniel Bennett, he is a gospel-centered guy. I disagree with him, but that, that's ultimately what he's all about. 
If, if we were so excited by the gospel that this would be the cause that others censure me, my boss, my parents, my friends, the government, how great would it be if the cause of their frustration with me was my undying allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ and my absolute refusal to love anything above Christ? That would be magnificent. And may that be true of each of us. I don't want to be known as the guy who's, who's passionate about other things. Whenever a government official maybe runs into conflict with, with me, I hope they say, you know what? I know that he loves me. I know that he cares about me. But ultimately, it's because he believes what he believes about God. I, I don't want them to look at me and say, man, that's a guy that's really mad about that 50 bucks for the license fee. I'm annoyed by it. I'm not happy about it. But that's not who I want to be known as. I want to be known as a person who cannot but help speak of the gospel, what, we, what I've seen and heard. And there's a joy to this principle. It's the, the testimony of a changed life that's unavoidable. Unav and here's my caution with this principle. We can't decide later what we're going to be passionate about. In other words, the moment that persecution takes place, that's not the time to decide what we ultimately value. The time to decide that our ultimate value is Jesus Christ is now. The disciples here have made the decision to be witnesses for the Lord. And so they are unflinching in their commitment to that. Verse 21, they, 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 they further threaten them, but they'll let them go. Why? There's no way to punish them. Because everyone's praising God for what had happened. And I don't like verse 22 that much. The sign of healing was performed on the man who was more than 40 years old, as if that's some sort of amazing thing that's so old. But it shows the miraculous nature of a transformed life. God can transform the under 40s, and He can transform the over 40s. God is amazing in His power and His ability. And therefore, we obey his call. God's call to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ must be obeyed by his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for the, the, the weather that you've given us and the, the opportunity we, we have together. And Father, we, we pray this morning that the, the focus of our lives, that the passion of our lives would be that the gospel of your son Jesus, that our, our passion for Jesus would... would uh, just overwhelm all other desires that we have. And that as people look at us as a church, they would be struck not by, our, not by our abilities, not by our interests, not by our hobbies, not by our intellect, but they would be struck by our love for your son Jesus above all things. And Father, we, we pray that you would help us as, as at times we will have to, to, to live in a way that's in disobedience to whatever authority you've, you've placed in different spheres. That we pray that we would do so in such a way that the gospel of Jesus Christ is furthered and that others would see the beauty of your son even as we, even as we act in disobedience to authorities at times, ultimately being obedient to you. Give us the courage and the power to do so. We pray in your son Jesus' name.